Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson, and I am not quite sure how we did it, but somehow, some way, we have made it to another Friday. Coming up, Roxana Julepot is going to tell us about her new cookbook, Mother Grains, which Bon Appetit called the most exciting cookbook of the spring. I always wanted to make this decadent, time-honored, delicious goods just with better ingredients. Plus, I know, I know, a cicada plague is not what the world really needs right now, but we're going to hear from an entomologist who has a trick for making the whole thing seem slightly less terrible. I want you to think about it sort of like a a really excitable acapella concert. But first, it's our conversation about the week that was with two excellent guests. First up, we have Travel Anderson, their journalist and co-host of the podcast Fanti. Travel, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. And with us for the first time is Lucas Silvera. He's one of the hosts of Shine True, an excellent show on Fuse. Lucas, hey. Hey, how are you? It's a great question. I think at this point, I will just say I am hanging in. Um, So I think the biggest story from this week was definitely the verdict in the Chauvin trial. Derek Chauvin being the police officer who was charged with the murder of George Floyd. He was found guilty on Tuesday. This was a huge story. I mean, I don't know. I kind of feel like it's one of those, like, where were you when you heard kind of stories? And I I Mm -hmm. just want to ask you that question, Travel. Like, I don't know. I guess first, how much did you follow the trial on a daily basis? And where were you when you heard the verdict? I didn't really follow the trial closely. Um, I just for kind of like personal mental health reasons, I've stopped. Uh, I've stopped p- paying as close attention to the trials when when, when these types of instances uh, pop up. Um, yeah. And so I wasn't really paying attention, but I knew it was happening. I feel like it kind of took over so much of our uh just kind of the zeitgeist right now Mm -hmm. um and so i was sitting at this very desk where i'm talking to you now um watching um i think it was the msnbc broadcast of it uh when it was read out because i did want to i I wanted to witness it um because i wasn't expecting you know the guilty verdict um and then i have to say even after getting the guilty verdict i feel like i and so many other black folks in particular um though we might have hoped for and thought that it might have been like a great moment of of celebration um and relief i think ultimately many of us are just feeling numb at this point right um just because it uh it, it shouldn't have taken, you know, a worldwide, you know, outrage in order for someone who misused their power um, to be held accountable. Um, and so, and so, yeah, I think a lot of us are just numb and having kind of this mixed feeling. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with Travel where it's, I'll be fully honest with you, I was shocked at the, at the verdict. I was shocked because I think we've become so accustomed, sadly, mm-hmm. in these cases 
that it's always going to be white supremacy reigns and the system protects the white police officer and and that's that so more than anything i think i was shocked but um i was relieved that it happened mm-hmm. but i also there was a piece of me that was so sad because all i could think about was george's family and what that would feel like it's not a celebration it is perhaps closure one step closer to policing the police that we actually have to do that but i can't see there being any kind of joy in george floyd's family right now and then within moments of that a 15 year old is killed again yeah. my hope is that it leads to more awareness more change um but i have a i have a very cautious hope yeah, Travel, what do you think about that? I mean, you talk about how at this point you're you're barely even feeling relief because you're just so numb. Like, are you are you able to hold space for hope or is there just, you know, I mean, speaking of the 16-year-old who was shot in Ohio pretty much at the same time the verdict came down. Like, yeah. is it just one thing after the other so it's hard to even eke out light? Yeah, you know, and and I want to say her name, Makaya Bryant is her name. Um I encourage everyone to to avail themselves of the information surrounding that situation um but you know i think it's when when people ask about like hope and optimism particularly from black folks i always just find it interesting because i feel like as a community as black people we have to be hopeful we have to be Mm -hmm. optimistic um just because of of how much foolishness that we have to deal with on a daily basis and then if you happen to be black and queer or black and trans or black Mm. and working class or whatever the case may be and disabled how all of those systems of oppression just compound our experience and so for me personally I think I am hopeful because I have to be hopeful Mm. but I also have to be very realistic and just look at, you know, look at history, you know, look at what society has consistently told us as Black people um, about our worth um, or lack thereof, I guess I should say. Mm-hmm. So changing gears uh, to something that took place in a very distant location um, was something that happened actually on Mars earlier this week, which I thought was pretty interesting. For the first time in human history, we flew a thing on another planet. Uh, this flight was less than 40 seconds, but still <laughs> we like got a little copter up in the air and back down. Um, I don't know. I find this one really interesting on a couple different layers, partly because initially I'm, I mean, it is human history, right? Like that's amazing, but also like, especially given the conversation we've just had so much still needs to happen on this planet that I'm sort of like, really, we're going to spend all this money and attention on, on that thing. So I don't know. I was curious what you think, Lucas, let's start with you. Um, you know, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. Are you, you're a space guy. Uh, yeah. so <laughs> I'll start with my nerd self. I love that. Glad to have you. There's a, there's a part of me that is obviously kind of intrigued and, and curious. Also with that comes the, you know, the thoughts that you just expressed, which is we got all this stuff going on down here. We have a pandemic. We have a country that has, you know, I'm assuming that it was uh, the U.S. that had this helicopter up up in yes. space. Yeah. And all, all I can think about is y'all don't have like 
<laughs> healthcare, but you have a but you have a but you have a helicopter in space. I knew you and were going to bring up the healthcare thing. I'm going to bring up the healthcare because, and it's not you; it's your government, right? It's your government, and it's your government's priorities, and it's it's an unfortunate thing. So it's a very polarizing thing to feel excitement and also a little bit of contempt at the same time. Yeah, the phrase I keep thinking hearing you as I heard you talk was like just mind fuck, you know. Yeah. <laughs> just like what? So yeah, what do you think, Travel? Are you like a are you a space nerd? You know, I cannot say that I have ever been interested in uh space. I'm not a Trekkie. I don't care about the Star Wars of it all. The closest <laughs> I get to anything, you know, like that is maybe, I don't know, Guardians of the Galaxy, maybe. Oh, sure. Um, okay. yeah. <laughs> um, but I only got introduced to that because of Black Panther. So you see where I'm getting into it at. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and I, but I, I do think that, so I feel two ways about it. I think one, I'm like, oh, that is, that is really great. You know, great accomplishment, cute for you. Um, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I, maybe there is life on Mars. And like, maybe Mars is, is, is a place where I and the rest of black people can go and get away from white supremacy. You know, why <laughs> oh, not? There you go. Yeah. But then part of me also thinks like, oh, you know, white supremacy is actually super powerful and the effects of Western imperialism. And I'm like, maybe we, <laughs> should not yeah, be going yeah. to other planets. Mm. Uh, and if they do, even if they do have life, disrupting what they got going on, right? Disrupting right. they peace because we want to, you know, conquer the world yep. uh, or I guess beyond the world. Just bring in smallpox to Mars. Yeah. Right, you know, and I'm just like, I don't know. So I'm, I'm really in that middle area. I, I think I part of me wants to applaud kind of the feat that it is to mm-hmm. to put a helicopter on on any place other than this planet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other side of me is like, okay, what what is the end goal of this exploration? Um, yeah. And part of me, I just I don't feel like it is well intentioned. Mm, yeah that's uh oh that just gave me shivers yo yeah that's heavy that's real heavy i'm sorry um, no, <laughs> no, no, no 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 please don't apologize hey. please don't apologize um that's where my head is always at <laughs> <laughs> yeah so on a much lighter side of things um i want to talk to y'all about kumail nanjiani he's an actor he's a comedian um he's his muscles are just extremely large. Um, there was a photo that came out of him this week that um, the men's health headline for it, they called him swole. And he's, ju- I mean, he's just super ripped. I forget what the name of the movie is that he re- originally had gotten super strong for, but it was this like transformation that you see now and then that I find especially fascinating with comedians who like get the big role. Speaking of guardians of the galaxy, I think Chris Pratt is another great example of that. Right. Who like used to be this like, normal looking human on parks and rec and then all of a sudden got the marvel deal and like had to get super ripped Mm -hmm. um i just find it really fascinating and i don't know as we were all talking about it on the like nerdette's production team we were we started arguing over the difference between like buff and ripped and swole i'm pretty sure swole is for sure the strongest looking but i was really curious where y'all thought buff and ripped fell on that spectrum what do you think travel I love this question. I think that swole to me conveys like girthiness, like like just be, mm-hmm. you know, brute size, you yeah. know? Um ripped for me is about like definition. 
<laughs> it's about the pecs doing what the pecs do, the abs, you know, poking out and doing what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think that's where I'm on that scale. And I think the movie that you were talking about is the Eternals movie, I think yes. is what it's called. Yes, it comes out it later this year. Um, but, you know, I think it's always interesting when celebrities have these, you know, big reveals of like what they do to their bodies for particular yes. roles. Because as somebody who's currently going through body issues right now with mm-hmm. all this COVID pandemic situation, uh, because, you know, I like to eat. I always love to eat. But, you oh know, in God. the pandemic, yeah. I've been eating a lot more, honey. OK, uh, <laughs> and I love it. Don't get me wrong. Uh, <laughs> but I'm just like, you know, if I had the money and the access to hire somebody to cook for me, to to have somebody yell at me, and I had the incentive of a multi-million dollar check from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, waiting for me on the other end, maybe I too could be swole or buff or ripped, you know? Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, that's totally my next question is just like, I mean, I think it's hilarious to talk about but there is also a very real like how much (laughs) are these people like perpetuating really harmful ideas about what our bodies are supposed to look like you know Mm. what do you think lucas well as somebody who's trans-bodied i see all these like the celebrated trans masculine bodies are all of you know these folks who are ripped who are thin and who are mostly white and mm-hmm. obviously I'm white, but I, it's always like this very particular kind of trans guy um, that is portrayed. I have learned, though, that there's something that I have to separate, which is that one person's journey cannot be my journey. And if that's affecting me in a specific way, then it is work that I need to do on myself. But I still, I still place some accountability on how the mainstream media continues to over and over and over only amplify specific kinds of bodies. And yesterday I saw something that made such a huge difference in my life, which was Lizzo sitting. I don't know if you guys saw this photo of her. She's just sitting herself up. She's naked. She's got no makeup on and she's doing this um, self-love campaign, which is something that I'm very, very much into um, being, you know, an advocate for. Um, and just to see her just be like, no, I'm not lifting this part of myself. I'm not putting makeup on. This is my body. I'm real. And she's gorgeous. She's like, she's, she's gorgeous. beautiful. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I love, and it makes her even more gorgeous to me that she has this capacity to just say like, essentially, you know, F you. And yeah. I don't care what y'all think about my body. And that empowers me. And I love that. Yeah. And one thing I have found refreshing, I mean, I don't think it solves all the things, but like I have really appreciated, especially I think to hear from male actors about how difficult and unsustainable it really is mm-hmm. to to have those bodies when they do for roles. I mean, I I don't think it solves the problem, but I think at least for all of us to realize, like, no, this real like for real is not real life, I think is mm-hmm. really important. You know, that's true. Yeah, I know that yeah. bodies like that, um, it takes like some, it, literally it is a lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. You know? And it doesn't sound that fun. No, I'd rather sit on the couch and eat some chips. Yes. Period, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Travel, Lucas, y'all are the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
I think it's fair to say that our next guest is a whole grain nerd. What does that even mean, you ask? Well, you probably kind of know what a whole grain is, right? It's something that hasn't been stripped of its hulls or bleached. So you just take the whole kernel, which is the seed of a plant, and you grind it up into a flour. That is obviously not the case with your average all-purpose white flour, which is processed pretty intensely. And the point of it really is to be as neutral and versatile as possible. When you bake something with a whole grain flour, not only is it actually more healthy, but it's often more flavorful. And you're supporting sustainable agriculture and biodiversity. In her new cookbook, Mother Grains, Roxana Julepot makes the case for cooking with often overlooked grains like barley, buckwheat, corn, oats, rice, rye, and sorghum. Roxana, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm thrilled. So I feel like there are plenty of cookbooks that are all about alternative flowers and sort of how horrible all-purpose flour is. Um, most of them seem to be using new flowers to make things healthier and not necessarily more delicious. And I don't mean to throw shade on them by any means, right. <laughs> but I think what's really interesting about mother grains is that I feel like what you're doing is like it's additive. It's an additive process. You're thinking about what kinds of flowers could make something even better. Well, you know, when I started writing this cookbook um, and when I started working with uh, grains, my intention was to keep doing delicious stuff. I have been a baker for 20 years now. My, this exploration started about seven, but really intensified in the last five. And mm -hmm. I would say that I, I was never, it was never my intention to switch gears. I always wanted to make this decadent, time-honored, delicious goods, just with better ingredients, um, more engaging, delicious, innovative ingredients. So yeah, you say you haven't come across a recipe that doesn't benefit from adding a whole grain flour. Um, Affirmative, yes. So in general, with this book, you've you've found recipes that really bring out the flavor of and benefit from a specific grain. I think there's only one thing in the book that you use every grain on to try different iterations, and that's the chocolate chip cookie. Correct. And I mean, I think it's worth getting the book just to see the gorgeous spread of all the different cookies. You can see, you know, how the different grain flours, like the crinkles or what, you know, like it just makes each cookie different. They're gorgeous. I'm curious why you think the chocolate chip cookie is like the perfect vehicle for trying all of these different flours. What I like about this recipe is that I've made it so much for so many years that I know it so well. I know what it does. I know the butter. I know the, the sugar ratio. I know the chocolate that I like. I know how they expand in the oven. I know how big they get. I know that they are not super thick generally or like they're thin. So when I change the flour and the flour alone, I'm getting, a, getting an education on the flour itself. So when I added rye, I was very surprised to see that the cookies expands a lot and it's actually uh, thinner rather than a thick and chunky cookie. But when I use Sonora wheat, like all that bran in that wheat, uh, even though it's very creamy and soft, it actually get, gets like very robust and get, get, makes, makes it a fat and actually like uh, almost meaty cookie. So these are really interesting things. I also learned that like buckwheat and chocolate are, is amazing. It's an amazing combination. Um, mm. So you learn about the way they react, but you also learn about the way they taste. And yes. how they taste in relationship to other ingredients. Yeah, I just think it's really cool. I, I don't get me wrong, I love a chocolate chip cookie, but I think there is a special place in my heart 
for like the perfect peanut butter cookie. Mm-hmm. And I have to say the recipe for the peanut butter cookies in Mother Greens is is the perfect peanut butter cookie. Like you did it. it it's quintessential. And um, I think that it's also, like you said, so classic that we don't want to mess with it. So I was, um, my approach when I was working with that recipe is just like, wh- how am I going to incorporate a grain that actually benefits and totally represents this cookie for ex- what it is and always should be um, mm-hmm. and not take anything away from it. Um, and I felt like the sorghum filled in perfectly. It does. Why is that? You know, sorghum has, is a very neutral tasting flour, but it adds a really, really good texture and perhaps you will agree with me that a good peanut butter cookie will have a little bit of a chewiness to it, but definitely mm-hmm. a little bit of a, a melt in your mouth quality. And that's what mm-hmm. sorghum does to cookies. So you have a list of philosophies in the beginning of the book. A couple really stood out to me. One of them was about sifting flour, which is something that I never do because I'm just too lazy. Uh, right. Why is it important to do? In cooking and in baking, we use sifters as a way to aerate the flour. So it's a, it's a way to basically line up an ingredient. So you will hmm. see this method very commonly used in recipes that re, that, that benefit from airiness. Like a, a classic example would be an angel food cake or a sponge hmm. cake, right? Um, uh, it's never a step to be <laughs> skipped. I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> And it is, I have a friend that says, like, there's two kinds of people in the world, those who sift and those who don't sift. I'm like, okay, okay. I'm like, okay, so people who want a shortcut are people who don't. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny, because I bake a lot. I mean, I use a metric scale. I feel like I'm not, you know, like, but okay, I'll start doing it. I'm glad you've shamed me. I think it's appropriate. (laughs) Another philosophy you talk about is the value of whimsy and imperfection, Mm -hmm. which I love, especially with baked goods, because I think we spend so much time thinking about like what would look good on Instagram, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it reminds me of it was a scone and biscuit making class I took in North Carolina several years ago now. But their whole thing was like, just call it rustic, you know? (laughs) And I just loved that so much. And it's also like, remember that rustic doesn't mean sloppy. Rustic actually means a lot of like really precise, great qualities. It means that something is made with artisanal ingredients. It's made by hand. It's a small batch. Um, You basically put your seal on every item. And there's something really special about being a talented baker who has done things over and over, over time and creating a whole tray of something and knowing that each individual item on that tray will take its own shape. It's, it's charming. It's, it's not, it's great. It's a, it tells a story of we are baking by hand. Yeah. And also there's um, a lesson to be learned in the fact that uh, to get there, to actually like let things do that, be whimsical we're pulling ourselves out of the process and let things be. So, wow, talk about leaving your control issues behind for a minute, right? <laughs> it's good for you. <laughs> I love that so much. Thank you so much for sharing and for writing such a beautiful book. I'm really delighted to be able to share it with our listeners. Thank you. And thank you so much for talking about Whole Grain. 
after the break, do cicada squawks drive you batshit crazy? Well, an entomologist who goes by the name of Dr. Bugs has a little trick for making them seem slightly less obnoxious. The song itself is just pretty much a, I'm lonely, love me, do 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 Or maybe still obnoxious, but more charming? I don't know. I think it means I will hate them less. Have you been looking around and seeing all the terrible things that are happening in the world and thinking, you know, I could use just one more thing to indicate that we might be at the end of days? Well, if so, you're welcome. Turns out this summer will feature one of those once every 17 year cicada plagues with a whole bunch of creatures in what's called Brood 10. Here to tell us about them is Sammy Ramsey, an entomologist also known as Dr. Bugs. Sammy, Dr. Bugs, welcome to Nerdette. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so I was telling a friend about this and her reaction was like, isn't there a 17-year cicada situation every year? Like, what's special about Brood 10? So the situation here is that in different areas of the country, different sets of broods are emerging. So the broods are the same sets of species of cicadas, but different broods are set on a different time interval and they're geographically distinct. So Brood 10 uh, will encompass some areas of Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, um, Washington, D.C., but there are other broods in other regions of the country that are emerging on their own 17-year cycle that is set apart from this one. I see. So can you explain a little bit like what actually is a cicada and, and what's their life cycle? Like how do they even know that it's been 17 years? So uh, this whole situation with them being underground, they have tunneled um, several, several inches below the surface of the ground. And they're just down there feeding on something called xylem fluid. Uh, it's this fluid that moves a very, very, very small amount of nutrients through plants. And it's mostly water. So they don't have a lot of nutrition uh, available to them at this point, And it allows them to grow very, very slowly, which works out for them. They're all able to emerge at exactly the same time and they can then have this crazy party where they're all singing at the same time so that they can attract um, the, the females and then there's this extravaganza as they all party it down for the few weeks that they have to live above ground and then they start the whole cycle over again. Wow. So is that how I should be thinking of it when I'm like sitting in my office and I'm really annoyed that there's a cicada in my tree squawking like right outside? Yes. Exactly. So I, 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 I think it actually would make more sense for you to think about it like the isolation that all of us have been through. So mm-hmm. um, we've all been you know, sitting there watching Netflix and things. And now we have this opportunity with uh, vaccinations and things coming out. Uh, we're looking forward to this moment where we can actually see people again and uh, have there are some people thinking about doing all of the holidays at once and holiday sort of situation. <laughs> And, and I mean, that's exactly what the cicadas are doing. They've got to make up for 17 years of isolation. That's wild. I mean, I thought one year was bad. Right? Okay. I, that actually does help a lot. I think I'm going to be a lot less annoyed this time around <laughs> than usual. So when is this onslaught going to happen? Great question. I've been <laughs> researching this like crazy because I want to see 
every part of this. I want to know the exact day where they emerge from above ground. I want to be out in the middle of the forest at six o'clock in the morning, watching them come out of the ground. But it's difficult to pinpoint exactly. We know what year they're going to emerge and we know what the trigger is for their emergence at Hmm. 64 degrees of the the temperature of the ground that that triggers the cicadas to uh, decide to start coming out of the ground, climbing trees. And this is when the party starts. But when will the ground temperature actually reach a consistent temperature of 64 degrees or above? We kind of have a range. And as a result of climate change, that range has been shifting back and forth, and it makes it very difficult to predict. So all I can say is sometime between the end of April and the middle of May, we're expecting that this extravaganza will be kicked off. So do y'all have like a betting pool going? (laughs) Oh, oh, I hadn't thought about that. We really should... (laughs) I, you know what? My money is on April 28th. That is my birthday. And I feel like the cicadas are just like, as an entomologist, I feel like we should be synced up, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I love that very much. So how many cicadas are we talking about here in the brood 10 thing? Okay. So we don't have an exact number, of course, because it's That's difficult fair. to actually count all of them. Uh, but Things that have been underground for 17 years? Exactly. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> the expectation is that it's on the order of trillions. Um, we do know that more than 1.2 million cicadas are able to emerge per acre of land. Good Lord, that is so many cicadas. Yes. <laughs> Knowing how loud one cicada can be. <laughs> well, speaking of, I mean, one cicada can be between 85 and 106 decibels in volume. The ones that... No. Yeah. So that's like a very loud garbage disposal or a dump truck <laughs> going over potholes. It can be pretty loud. Sammy Ramsey, thank you so much. That was really a pleasure. Anytime. I'm always glad to be able to get people excited about the natural world. All right, that is it for today. Our panel chat about Daniel Evans' short story collection, The Office of Historical Corrections, is going to drop in the feed on Tuesday. I'm really excited for you to hear it. Of course, in that episode, we are also going to announce the May Book Club pick, so keep an ear out for that. The episode was produced by me and Isabel Carter. Our executive producer is Brendan Banizak. We will see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.